from ABC7 New York, this is Eyewitness News Extra Time. Good evening and welcome once again to this edition of Eyewitness News Extra Time. I'm Bill Ritter. We're going to begin with some big breaking news that's happening in the Middle East. American military forces launching retaliatory strikes on targets in both Syria and Iraq. President Biden had promised a military response after those three American service members were killed in a drone attack in Jordan. A sharp escalation tonight in the war in the Middle East. We want to get right to Josh Einiger. He's in the newsroom with the very latest. Josh. And Bill, over the last couple of hours, more information has been dripping out of the Pentagon about these airstrikes. The U.S. deploying a squadron of B-2 bombers to drop 125 bombs on 85 targets in seven locations across Syria and Iraq. It's important to point out the U.S. didn't target anything on Iranian soil, and that's a key distinction the Pentagon is hoping might prevent a further escalation in a region that's already on fire. You've got a brutal war underway between Israel and Hamas, and in response to that, Iran-backed groups have been wreaking havoc in the Red Sea, attacking shipping interests and U.S. military vessels. But last weekend, raised the stakes after a drone attack on a remote U.S. base in the north of Jordan. The base is called Tower 22. It sits at a very dangerous triangle border between Jordan, Syria, and Iraq. Three American service members, one from New Jersey, died in that attack in their sleep. Today, President Biden attended the dignified transfer of their remains back to Dover Air Force Base in Delaware. He and the Pentagon spent days gaming out how they'd respond, and tonight's action is, they say, just the first step. Our response began today, the president said in a statement released this afternoon. It will continue at times and places of our choosing. The U.S., he continued, does not seek conflict in the Middle East or anywhere in the world, but let all those who might seek to do us harm know this. If you harm an American, he promised, we will respond. It is right now the middle of the night in the region. Much of the Middle East is still sleeping, but they will wake up to news of this dramatic step. And one key question, will it lead to a dangerous escalation in a part of the world that's already in a lot of trouble? Bill. John, uh, John Josh, stick around for a second because I have a couple questions to ask you. Sure. you. You were in that region yes. when war broke out for us. Uh, people remember your coverage there. And this is what people feared. And it's several months later, but nonetheless, this, this particular conflict right now today had a little extra oomph to it that I think got a lot of people worried. Well, look, Bill, I think one of the biggest concerns, I think, before the actual ground invasion began when we were in Israel was what happens if the ground invasion begins and then Iran-backed interests in the north and Lebanon, uh, Hezbollah and others start to attack Israel. They didn't do that. And there are analysts who think that's because they don't want a wider war, but they they want to show support to Hamas. So what they've been doing is sort of on the edges, they've been attacking shipping corridors and ships. And in this case, they sent a drone and attacked this base. So there is a school of thought that they're 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 tr the, the other side, the Hezbollah, the Iran backed proxies are, are trying to be at least somewhat proportional and not enrage the U.S. to the point where it, it, it gets the U.S. involved. The U.S. in its side has, is trying very hard uh, to play this game so that it doesn't draw Iran into this war. And then we're in a wider regional or even global conflict, which everyone wants to avoid. And the U.S. at the same time, just two days ago, now giving sanctions, you know, putting across sanctions to, the, to people in Israel who get involved in the West Bank. 
Well, look, you know, there's a big political, geopolitical around the world and political uh, here at home concern for the president, who's yep. been very supportive of Israel uh, and, you know, has lost a lot of support among people who support uh, Palestinians. And so this is, I think, a, a, a way for the White House to say, look, you know, we recognize that Israeli militants uh, are involved in inflaming, particularly in the West Bank, a lot of hatred toward Israel and a lot of this. And so, so yes, they did sanction some Israeli settlers uh, relate, res responsible for what's been deemed settler violence uh, in areas that, that are kind of contested. Uh, and so, you know, will that be enough? We'll see. We will see. And I assume you're going to continue. In fact, I know you're going to continue to work on this for Eyewitness News tonight at 11 o'clock on Channel 7. Josh Heiniger, thank you for that, Josh. You bet. All see right. you, pal. Meanwhile, a worker killed today at a construction site in Brooklyn. Investigators say the basement floor of a three-story building under construction just collapsed. And it shouldn't have happened. Why? Because there was a stop work ban in place at the site. Eyewitness News reporter Jim Dolan with the details. Fire department was here in minutes, but for one 33-year-old construction worker whose body was later removed by the medical examiner's office, it was too late. Fortunately, we had to uh, pronounce the uh, victim, one of the workers, uh, dead at the scene. A horrible accident to be sure, but the building's department says it never should have happened. The work being done all of the work on this building, according to the DOB, was illegal. There are absolutely no plans submitted to the Department of Buildings. Um, so this fatality uh, absolutely should not have happened. They should not have been doing this work. Any work. The DOB got complaints about the illegal construction back in December and issued a stop work order in early January but the work continued. The only work that should have been done at this site is to make the site safe. And as you can see, that stop work order was violated. As DOB engineers examined the illegal construction this afternoon, the problems that led to the collapse were obvious. Heavy equipment stored on a floor that was not properly shored up. Three people who were working in the cellar area of the structure, one of them was pinned, the first floor, had collapsed into the cellar area in a V-shaped collapse. Again, a 33-year-old man is dead after a collapse at an illegal construction site here in Brooklyn this afternoon. Fines could reach into the hundreds of thousands of dollars. It has not yet been decided if there will be criminal charges as well. In Borough Park, Jim Dolan, Channel 7 Eyewitness News. And of course, we'll keep you posted on the latest. Meanwhile, a major announcement from Connecticut, Governor Ned Lamont announcing today that his state will be the first in the country to wipe out medical debt for 250,000 people. It's amazing. Eligible families include those whose medical debt equates to 5% or more of their annual income or whose household income is up to 400% of the federal poverty line. This is a very big deal. Lamont says he's leveraging a $6.5 million fund from the American Rescue Plan of 2021 to cancel a billion dollars in medical debt by working with a nonprofit organization that buys and eliminates debt. This is not something they did because they were spending too much money. This is something because they got hit with a medical emergency. They should not have to uh, you know, suffer twice, first with the illness, then with the debt. 
Last month, New York City announced a similar plan to wipe out more than $2 billion in medical debt for up to a half a million residents. The Journal of the American Medical Association says medical debt is the number one source of debt collection in the U.S. Can you imagine? It's greater than credit cards, utilities, auto loans, and other debt. All of it combined, which include, of course, student debt, I would imagine. Let's get some facts about all this and how it happened and what it's about and how it's going to spread around the country, I suspect. Joining us now with more is the executive director to Governor Lamont and the executive director for the Office of Health Strategy, Dr. Deidre Gifford. And doctor, thank you for joining us. This is really an interesting development. There's no question. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. So first of all, before we get into the weeds of this, get into the big weeds, the money weeds, because I want to, this is a good deal. I wish all my finances were this easy. Six and a half million dollars worth of funds to take a billion dollars worth of debt and eliminate. How does that happen? Well, as you know, as the debt works its way through the collections process, a lot of time debt gets written down to a fraction of the original amount. So that's how the governor is able to leverage a relatively small but still significant amount of, of federal relief dollars, COVID relief dollars to erase the debt for up to potentially 250,000 people in the state of Connecticut, up to as much as $650 million worth of debt. So it is a, gonna take a big chunk yeah. out of the debt in the, in the state. So listen, I, I, you heard what I said, the credit cards, utilities, auto loans, and other debt combined. We use the word crisis a lot, but we have a lot of things in this country that are in crises, and I think this is one of them. Well, I would agree with your characterization that healthcare affordability has reached a crisis for certain groups. We know in Connecticut, for example, 78% of people are worried about being able to pay for their healthcare. Uh, up to 10, uh, more than 10% of people in our state, one in 10, say that they've had their medical debt reported to a credit agency. Mm. So the governor is working very hard, not only on this medical debt issue, but to tackle healthcare affordability across the board. And we have lots of ways that we need to approach that so that people don't have to worry, as the governor said, not only about being sick or staying healthy, but about the debt that they incur when they get healthcare. You know, there was a mayor who ran for New York more than a decade ago, you know, calling it a tale of two cities. It's worse than a tale of two cities here in New York City. There are now almost 800 billionaires in the country. Uh, in 2001, there were something like 45 the disparity is just so great. There are so many people who are in trouble with their health care. You, you bring up a really good point. We know that medical debt disproportionately uh, affects communities of color, and it also impacts mental health. So when people are worried about the bills that they have to pay, they, their mental health condition can be made worse and it makes them more difficult to cope with other stresses that they have. So that's why this move that the governor is taking uh, will have lots of rebound effects beyond just uh, canceling the debt for these individuals. Can you and the governor and all the people who are working in this, in this issue, can maybe we start to lower the costs of medical care a little bit? Because that is part of the problem too. Well, we're working hard and that's a complex issue, but we're tackling it from a lot of different directions. We need to make sure that people aren't strapped with out-of-pocket costs that they can't afford, that employers aren't burdened with costs of insurance yeah. that is taking away from their ability to grow their businesses, et cetera. 
So you're absolutely right. We've got to tackle the cost of health care as well as the debt. Well, lots of people applauding what you and the governor and all of the rest of your staffs did uh, today and announced today. And congratulations to you. Thank you for coming on to explain, Dr. Deirdre. Thank you for having Deirdre me. Deirdre Gifford, thank you very much. Executive Director of the Office of Strategy, Health Strategy in Connecticut. We thank you for joining us and have a good weekend. You're welcome. And thank our you. best to the governor as well. Okay, we move on to weather. No crisis there, although unless you call all the lack of sunshine a crisis recently. We caught a glimpse of the sun, though, earlier today. What's it look like for the near-time future, Lee Goldberg? And we have a beautiful forecast to tell you about over the weekend. I've been doing my squinting exercises. We get ready for the sunshine over the weekend. A couple of thin spots in the clouds. You look downtown and over to New Jersey right now. Beautiful lights in New Jersey. We're at 42 right now, and we'll call it mostly cloudy. A gusty northerly breeze. So temperatures will fall down through the 30s this evening. Wind chills will drop into the 20s as we begin to clear out. What a stretch this has been. 11 straight days with little or no sunshine. Have to go back to January's 22nd for our mostly sunny days, but we Follow up this 11 day stretch with just flipping the switch and going 180 because it's six straight sunny days on the way that will take us into next week. Add to that above normal temperatures for the most part in one little cool spell there on Tuesday. We could be in the 50s this time next week. The threat of showers doesn't return till next Friday. There are still some showers that are brushing the Jersey Shore. They're starting to dry up and wither away. A sprinkle near Flemington, New Jersey, a little flurry over parts of Ulster County. This all dries out tonight. Now there still are patchy clouds from time to time. Wake up. It's mostly sunny. It's rather chilly. And listen, it's beautiful looking outside, but you definitely still need the heavier coat tomorrow. We'll only be in the upper 30s to low 40s, and it'll feel like about, let's say, 30 to 35 during the afternoon hours because there still will be a gusty wind, maybe 20 to 25. Tomorrow night, the wind's back off, so we'll have a chilly night, drop to the lower 20s in the coolest spots north and west, right around freezing in New York City. And in the afternoon, with lots of sunshine, less wind, and a few degrees higher, should feel great during the afternoon hours if you're in the sunshine. So high pressure has set up shop. It is stretching the Great Lakes now to the Mid-Atlantic. So we are in a perfect position here with storms kind of swirling around us. It's actually a, a pretty unsettled weekend down in the southeast if you have any travel plans there. The only thing we have to watch out for in early next week is there's a storm that's kind of doing laps in the North Atlantic and there might be a couple bands of clouds that back in from the north and east and maybe brush the coastline. The best chance of that might be Monday night into Tuesday. Otherwise, most of the area should still be partly to mostly sunny. It's a little chillier on Tuesday as we'll probably stay in the 30s. Then we'll turn our attention to some high clouds spilling in from the west on Wednesday. You know, just a little filtered sunshine. That's a weak front that we'll get here by Friday. That will be our next chance of a shower. Out ahead of that, it's a pretty nice warm-up. So here's your seven-day AccuWeather forecast. And this is a pretty simple one to put together. Just have to focus on a little wind tomorrow. Got a lot of sunshine on Sunday. Monday, beautifully sunny. A little chillier on Tuesday. By Wednesday, some high clouds mixing in. More of a high overcast by the end of the day Thursday, but we're near 50. And if there's going to be a shower, it's next Friday. But even that doesn't look like significant rain. So it's also another chance for our soil to dry out. The water tables are running very high, so we can afford to have a nice dry stretch. Thank you, Lee Goldberg. Uh, today, the district attorney of Manhattan speaking for the first time about the two New York cops attacked last weekend at Times Square. Alvin Bragg has been under big criticism after several migrants accused of the attack were released without bail. He insists his office made the correct call on these bail decisions based on the evidence presented to him. We assess the evidence, brought the appropriate charges, and are continuing to investigate. We're at the beginning of the process. We'll go forward to indictment. There may be different decisions made at that juncture. You've seen this before, from complaint to indictment. Uh, the important thing is to hold the right people accountable for the right conduct. This is a bedrock principle of our justice system. DA also said that one of the men they arrested last night 
was held on bail before because of the violent role he's accused of having in this attack. The final rules for outdoor dining structures in New York City, they've been released today, and those sheds can no longer be fully enclosed. They have to be 40 feet at least and 8 feet wide and accessible to the disabled. The structures can only be used until midnight, and the ones that are located on the street can only stay up eight months of the year, from April 1st to November 29th. Outdoor dining on the sidewalk can stay up all year. Restaurants that have structures up now have until August 3rd to apply for a permit or take them down. The new rules take effect on March 3rd. And some sad news. The actor Carl Weathers has died. He was just 76 years old. Weathers starred, of course, as Apollo Creed in the first four Rocky movies. But he also starred in Predator and Happy Gilmore and recently in The Mandalorian. Weathers appeared in more than 75 movies and TV shows in a career that spanned five decades. His family says he died peacefully in his sleep yesterday. As we continue with Eyewitness News Extra Time, my pal Anthony Johnson joins us with sports and he'll take it the rest of the way. All right, welcome to Sports Extra Time. I'm Anthony Johnson. A busy week in the sports world. We speak with Mike Golick Jr. about the state of the Giants and the Jets, as well as Super Bowl predictions. But first, we start our sports shorts. The Knicks just keep winning. They beat the Pacers last night in a come-from-behind win, led by 40 points from Jalen Brunson. The Knicks have now run nine in a row. That's tied for the longest winning streak in the league this season. In hockey, several local players will take part in the NHL All-Star Game tomorrow. The league and the Players Association also announcing today that players will participate in the next two Winter Olympics. And in baseball, spring training, yes, is right around the corner. The Yankees announcing today an exhibition series against a Mexican League team in Mexico City at the end of March. And the Mets making moves today, adding an arm to the bullpen. They signed hard-throwing right-hander Shintaro Fu to a one-year deal. He tops out at 101 miles per hour on the radar gun. He and the rest of the pitchers and catchers will report to Port St. Lucie on February 12th. That's just 10 days away. Mr. and Mrs. Met helped packing up the truck today before it left for Florida. The rest of the team will report two weeks from tomorrow on the 17th. The first full squad workout will take place two days later, all leading to opening day on March 28th. Baseball will be here before you know it. And as we continue with Eyewitness News Extra Time, we sit down with Mike Golick Jr. He gives us his take on the turmoil surrounding the Jets as well as who he thinks will bring home the Lombardi Trophy next week. All right, welcome back. We're just nine days away from Super Bowl 58 in Las Vegas. Kansas City Chiefs are looking for their second straight championship, a feat that hasn't happened in 20 years. Around here, the football landscape isn't so rosy. The Giants still don't have a defensive coordinator after an explosive report came out criticizing Brian Dable's coaching style. And now the Jets find themselves under the gun after a bombshell report out of their camp came this week. Ryan Fields spoke with Mike Golick Jr. to break it all down. Obviously the talk this week here in New York, the bombshell report by the athletic dissension amongst the ranks, if you will. Aaron Rodgers having so much say in the front office moves. Uh, Robert Sala threatening to take coaches' cell phones. Uh, how much are you buying into this dysfunction? And what could the possible fallout from all of this be? 
Yeah, I, I'm buying into a fair amount of it. I mean, listen, Diana Rossini and the folks that reported on this have, are usually pretty nails on most of what they go after. And most of this sounds like the Jets. I mean, anyone familiar with the franchise doesn't feel all that surprised hearing there's dysfunction inside the building. But I guess for me, what I take from it is losing does things to team over time. When you see it over and over again, it's been a few years of this. It felt like there was progress made, but when all of a sudden the hopes put it a different place because of the quarterback and you understandably make a lot of concessions in order to make a guy who's a future Hall of Fame quarterback and probably the best one you've had around there and God knows how long in the franchise, it's understandable that once he goes down, things are going to go badly. Do I think they made mistakes in how they managed the roster after the Aaron Rodgers injury? Absolutely. That being said, what I take away from this is the priorities for the offseason are still the same. If you can go out and rebuild a lot of this offensive line, get it to a better place, Aaron Rodgers being back on the field does solve a lot of these problems with Nathaniel Hackett, with some of the concerns about him as an offensive coordinator when you've got the guy he was brought there to coach actually out under center. I think we're all buying the fact that Rodgers has a lot of power within those headquarters. I guess the question is, does he have too much power or are the Jets kind of along for the ride here at this point once they agreed to sign him to that contract? Oh, the Jets made their bed at that point. It, it, it's one of those things where, again, I sort of understand making a lot of those concessions to go all in on here and now because you don't know how much time you've got with Rodgers. The injury certainly highlighted that for everybody who wasn't fully aware of it before. And so this is what happens when you have a franchise who had been sort of rudderless for a while who all of a sudden gets the best thing that could have happened to them in God knows how long is you do end up acquiescing, especially knowing Aaron Rodgers is a very specific personality type that we We've seen lots throughout the media. And so, no, I'm not surprised by that. And again, it's about putting all your chips in the middle of the table while you've got a unique opportunity. Should be an interesting offseason for the Jets. Their fellow tenants at MetLife, the Giants. What direction would you like to see them go in this offseason? Uh, you need weapons, O-line help, and then linebacker help, I think, are all the top priorities here. But specifically, we know how this league works, right? We were just talking about Aaron Rodgers, who's the sun and the moon for the Jets right now, and him coming back, being able to assuage a lot of the fears and anxiety around these reports. I think for the Giants, your support, or excuse me, your focus is similarly on what happens with the quarterback position. This is really the last year of Daniel Jones' contract. The way it was structured was sort of a two-year bet on the young quarterback, and they've got to do their best to go out there and now put more weapons around him. Last offseason, really all you did was bring over a tight end and draft a little bit of help at wide receiver and Jalen Hyatt in the draft, but it didn't feel like nearly enough around him. So shoring up that right tackle spot opposite Andrew Thomas and trying to secure a couple of weapons so you can find out if Daniel's your quarterback of the future or if you're building the roster for the next guy that's going to come in. The Super Bowl dream remains for the Jets and the Giants. The 49ers and Chiefs are in the big game out in Las Vegas next week. We can't let you go without getting your prediction and how you see this one shaking out. I'm not picking against the Chiefs anymore, man. I can't do it. I picked against them the last two rounds against the Bills and the and the Ravens, and it made me look foolish. I, I think why they'll win is because they've demonstrated themselves to be every bit the heir apparent to the Brady and Belichick-led Patriots and how resilient and resourceful they are. We saw them all season long tinkering, trying to figure out who they could count on in that wide receiver room outside of Rasheed Rice and Travis Kelsey. And when the answers came back inconclusive, they said, all right, we'll batten down the hatches in the postseason. We'll tighten things down with multiple tight ends. We'll focus on running the ball, winning with defense. And then Mahomes, Kelsey, and these wide receivers will make timely plays when they need to. And it served them every which way. I think 
this team being led by defense took a while for us to all catch up to mentally. But now that we've arrived at this moment, I really don't see a world where they're doing anything other than hosting yet another Lombardi trophy. All right, that wraps up this edition of Eyewitness News Extra Time. Thank you for joining us. I'm Anthony Johnson. We're back live on Eyewitness News at 11. We hope to see you then. Have a great evening.